All right. Welcome everyone back to dissecting popular IT nerds today. Keith Warfolk on the phone. Well, line podcast recording. I don't know, whatever we called this thing. So welcome to the show. I'm actually really excited. I was going over the notes and I figured here's somebody that can talk about the cloud with intelligence. No puns in, intended there. So thank you for <laughs> thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, because the cloud can exist with or without intelligence. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's yeah. there. <laughs> Before we get started, let's go back in time. First computer, anything exciting? Can we even say, say that's exciting now? I, I was telling my kids last night, you missed all the fun times. You missed yeah. all the fun times. I thought it was more fun back then when you actually saw technology evolving from really almost nothing. I was like, I was alive when the VCR was invented, kids. I now know <laughs> that I'm old. Because my parents talked about the car being invented or the Model T. Yeah. Well, I remember when neighbors started to pay for HBO, like $10 a month. And I thought, oh, that's outrageous. Who's going to pay for TV? <laughs> mm, true. Bottled water. Bottled water. We laughed at that. We scoffed at the idea of bottled water. You drink out of the hose. What are people thinking? Bottled water? Exactly. And as far as first computers... So my first, you know, I guess real computer was was just a uh, IBM PC. So my dad yeah. was a 30-year IBM man, so you know, we got one of the first of those, those big clunky things you might remember mm. with the two floppy disk drives. Mm. You know, I think uh, back then if we yeah, so you know, we had the, <laughs> the Lux model, right? <laughs> so I think we had all of like 256k between the two floppy disks. <laughs> oh, excellent. And what did you do with said said box uh i mean what i do with it after i was done with <laughs> yeah, it well yeah what does someone do with said box back back in the day i'm Some sure word it, processing? it probably filled a number of landfills because these were things were huge <laughs> they were steel they were heavy <laughs> like yeah no, no such thing as portability in computers back then <laughs> uh, what do you mean recycling we haven't even invented bottled water yet. <laughs> exactly. And oh, all my uh, friends that were into gaming were building their own computers back, back in those days. Yes. Did you see this new game we had? We just it, that just came out. It's called Hangman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, back in computer school, so I was uh, going to University of Colorado. This is in the eighties. And we would do, uh, you know, is that CU Boulder? Assignment. Wait a second, is that CU Boulder or where? That is that is CU Boulder. So I'm a buff. Oh, uh, yeah, not good. Sorry, went to CSU. So yeah. we we were way behind. You guys were way smarter than us. You guys were like really like more the Ivy Leaguers, and we were like the like uh, you, the time, you, you times came down changed. the street from Greeley. You can go to CSU. Yeah, There's someone but, in Greeley. So right I was now. just up in that. I was just up at CSU this weekend, so I uh, I do the MS-150 ride every year, you know, to raise mm -hmm. money to fight multiple sclerosis, uh -huh. and that goes from Westminster to Fort Collins and back, so we get to stay on campus on Saturday night and see how amazingly that campus has grown every year, because mm. I've been this ride for, I don't know, 25 years or so, mm. and uh, I would say it's very competitive with uh, CU Boulder these days. Oh, yes, for sure. Now. It's different now. Oh, everyone, yeah. everyone ever there was like the great migration to 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 Colorado. You know, it's just um it's it's a different place now. I miss the old frisbee golf course mm. at CSU. Had a lot of fun playing playing frisbee golf there. And no there was some I, I was always really worried someone would get 
really badly injured because those it's in the middle of campus and there's people throwing these discs that are really hard plastic for anyone that's never played frisbee golf and i'm sounding very crunchy and coloradoian now even though i'm back in connecticut on the east coast the, uh, um yeah those, those discs are <laughs> they can break your nose they can break your nose so how does this all now we have to bridge this all into some kind of it show and so we had an ibm unrecycled computer that's probably in a landfill somewhere to where you are today riding bikes through the mountains of of the foothills foothills of colorado and how are you how'd you end up where you are yeah so i took a roundabout way um i did follow my dad's footsteps and after cu boulder joined ibm they sent me to north carolina research triangle park mm. uh, so started my career out as a developer on network products. Um, did that for a few years while I was in North Carolina. I got my MBA over at Duke. Uh, IBM was kind enough to offer to pay for that. What so, was that like back then, developer products? When you say develop, I mean, or networking products. I, I believe you said network. What yeah. was the network like back then? Um, very, you know, much simpler than today. And there, and there was no real, there was no cloud, you know, we're talking, uh, you know, early nineties now. And, um, so there were a lot of, well, let's, let's talk about that though, really, like, because I, I don't think people can really, sometimes people can't grasp that. My kids certainly cannot no cloud. What do you mean? We used computers without the internet. Cause that's, that was a reality we used. You don't even really think about it right now. Sometimes I think back, I'm like, yeah, we did. Yeah, the only internet that existed back then was the DARPA net that was for uh, for defense. And hmm. that's essentially where the internet grew from. The technologies for the internet came from DARPA. But back in those days, you know, IBM would have its own network, you know, with uh, shared telecom hubs and stuff. So that's the you know closest thing to the internet would be a global company like an IBM that was talking with multiple regions. There was an internal network, so we still wired landfill boxes together right mm -hmm. and right. what what was the networking i mean was there any you know do you remember any type of big growth or change or like wow this this was great this this networking product or we were able to do this like we all printed from the same printer or you know something like that i don't you know well, what was it, it was there was very low fear of cyber attacks back then, right? I mean, it wasn't until... It was sci-fi. It was like unreal. It was like we made a movie about it, hackers. There was, you know, it wasn't even like a real thing or yeah. like Tron or yeah, like the, Tron the, in a video that, game. Right? Yeah, yeah. Way ahead of, way ahead of their time. Um you know, now we, 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 no matter what our device is, it's a, it's our phone, it's our printer, it's uh it's our router where we, we, we're continually worried about cyber attacks, uh, you know, any size of business. It's, uh, it's friggin' incredible compared to, and you, you didn't even think cybersecurity wasn't even invented yet in the, in the early nineties. Well, it wasn't a thought if it had been a thought or if anyone had even realized that it could be a thing, it would probably be a lot easier job now. Yeah. Yeah. We were there, just, yes. It was, you know, to be a, a, an ethical hacker, so to speak, mm. uh, you were late to the party because uh, <laughs> nefarious people were kicking it in the gear by the late nineties. It's much easy. It's a much easier to be nefarious. It, it's it, much it, easier it to be nefarious. You know, uh, we just have to find one way in. I'm not uh you only have to be right once when you're into the nefarious one. <laughs> <laughs> um let's jump right into this. Let's let's fast forward and I 
once had um I can't remember who it was. We're, we'll have to go back in time. But um, anyways, your CEO reads about the cloud in Time Magazine and has to migrate to the cloud because he read about it in Time Magazine. And so we did it. And now we're in the cloud. What are all the mistakes we made? And you know, this is such a broad topic, but I want you to first maybe educate some people on this thing called Amazon and Azure and cloud services and private cloud and stuff. And what's everyone doing wrong? Sure. Is there any, you know, I don't even know where to begin. I'll let you. I'll let you spout off your, you know, your book title and and where we need to begin with this. And there's some very classic patterns of things that most companies were doing wrong, and in some cases are still doing wrong. Mm. So as companies heard about the buzzwords and their CIO said, yes, we must go to the cloud because our competitors are, or we want to be early in our industry to go to the cloud. So now we're talking, let's say early to mid 2000s, let's say it's about 2009 now. And that this would be the birth of Azure and AWS has already been up for about four years. And and we wanna to go to the cloud. And the, the easiest way seemingly and the fastest way seemingly to do it is what they would call lift and shift. It's an infrastructure as a service play. In other words, all the VMs we have running in our, in our on-prem you know, data centers and such, we're going to replicate those babies up in one of these clouds and and we're going to connect them the same way we're going to use basically some a lot of the same protocols and security controls etc problem with that and you know they all they all became to notice you know within two or three years after they did it tremendously more expensive because you often oversize things in the data centers because you have to be ready for an 80% spike in any time, even if you're only running at 30% most of the time. The cloud is you pay for what you use or what or what you what you set it up as. And in the if you set it up for 80% capacity all the time, you're you're paying for that all the time. Um, so yeah. So you uh the platform why would someone move to the cloud just because though? Are, are do people really do that? Would a smart CEO really move to the cloud just because, so he could brag to some people, "Hey, we're in the cloud"? Well, I'm probably going to make a, a few CIOs angry here, but there are mm -hmm. many CIOs I've met over the year, and you know, less than half, but there's still a significant amount that really aren't that technical. Don't they're, they're, <laughs> I want <they're>, names. <laughs> no, I'm just I want names and phone numbers. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Well they're very susceptible to the salespeople and the and the buzzwords and the trends. Mm, uh, Gartner Magic Quadrant. Uh bingo. They're they're all oh. the, the uh, Frost and made. Sullivan. Frost and Sullivan. I read <laughs> keep going, keep going. Yeah. So they'll I got an so email. I got an email the other day that yeah, I and read. they'll plant they'll plant that seed with their you know their head architect or um you know or their architecture team or their or their has a most prominent application teams and say guys I want you to take a look at moving to the cloud I hear it's going to save us a bunch of money so make it so and uh, now the the people that really dug in and under and understood what it meant to go to the cloud maybe made some better moves, but be perfectly honest, and in all fairness, the idea of going to the cloud and it being overly expensive after the fact, is not really everybody's fault. First of all, the, the cloud service providers are nefariously trying to talk you into doing an infrastructure as a service play because they make more money there. Mm -hmm. And so if you talk to their consultants, say, you know, AWS Azure, maybe even GCP, I'm not sure, but 
they will they, they will often help you with a migration acceleration program, which is all about uh, infrastructure as a service. And then, you know, the idea that, oh, well, we'll fix that later. You know, we'll, we'll optimize later. Well, the problem is you now have got a plane in flight. All your operations are running on your new systems now in the cloud with all its connectivity, uh, you know, interwoven. And it's harder to make that change. Your best opportunity to optimize for the cloud services is to do that before you get in flight. In other words, part of the migration, what should your target architecture be? It's not going to look the same as it did on-prem, and it shouldn't. Okay, so we need to translate that a little bit. So lift and shift. You're saying lift and shift, but there's something, There's like, it's not just lift and shift. It's like lift and... Um, Replicate. I don't know. Okay, lift and replicate, and then and and test and and then shift. Or there's there's another piece to the puzzle here, which you're saying people are missing. And yeah, what does that so, look like? What does that look yeah. like? And what can they do to do this right? Right. The, so the lift and shift is really shorthand for the target is infrastructure as a service, and that in, infrastructure in the cloud would look very similar to what you did on prem. And what you're missing is an analysis step that says, what is the right architecture for this for this application workload to be in the cloud to run uh, at at reason? You know what you want is the right level of performance at the lowest cost. And, and do know, people know what that that right architecture is? They do now. Uh, by now, they do. So there's okay. a number of like AWS has. Um, Oh, I forget what it's called, but it's a recommended architecture framework that you can use. And uh, and there's plenty of consulting firms like my own, Wavestone, where we uh, we regularly help them figure out what is the right target architecture. And by the way, not only target architecture, but target operating model. Going from on-prem to the cloud means a lot of differences for your roles, responsibilities, RACI, daily activities for all for not only your technical people, but it's kind of an enterprise journey where it's going to affect even your application owners. Hmm. Where um, where doth one begin with um, with with this? What are, what are I guess what or we can go two different directions. What are some very good case studies or examples of where someone did this, did it right, and it really was beneficial and saved them money? Yeah. So and and I'll kind of point at an industry that has done it more right than wrong and that's uh financial services they seem to have both the foresight and the and the uh vision to to be doing this in, in a pragmatic way but thinking of optimization as they went is that uh, because they deal with money though it's because they deal with as a multitudes of transactions they're used to high volume okay and uh, and because of that, they actually know what uh, has a high performance computing looks like uh, in one place, and understand there's an investment if you were to move it someplace else. Gotcha. Can you paint a clear picture of where these um, efficiencies are? Or I guess there has to be some kind of paradigm shift or thinking of the cloud differently than thinking of it from an infrastructure standpoint. Is there a way that you can paint a clear picture there? There is. So the, the cloud is just different. In fact, we uh, wrote a white paper recently about this, that when, when you're moving to the cloud... You just so you have... know, that's a, an amazing title for a book. The cloud is just different. I, yeah. I just think it's great. But anyways, keep going. 
Yeah, no, I agree with you 100. percent And that is, uh, I think that is the title of our blog that we just uh, that should be heading out anytime now on LinkedIn. Take keep an eye out for it. Um, and it's a three-part series, but it starts out with the cloud is different, and then it goes into uh, the reasons why you need, why and how you need to optimize and build in your FinOps, your financial operations along the way. So keep going. How is it different? Yeah. yeah. So it, it, it's different because you're 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 building uh, you're building to immediacy and need. So the 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 amount of compute power you need, the amount of storage you need. Even the type of database you need is what you need now, and you can configure it in a way that it can scale up or down. They, in the cloud, they call it elasticity because it's not just scale up; it might be scale down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can do that for certain infrastructure things, but you can do it even better for what they call the pla- uh, platform as a service (PaaS) services. And, and uh, a good proxy for this is database as a service. If you no longer have to do database administration. And you set up via rules that it's going to scale up as needed, um, and it's got all these uh, con- con- connections to the right applications. And you're doing this all as you know configurability rather than rather than custom code. Uh, it's tremendously powerful. And uh, the other piece of that puzzle is uh, you're you're using far far less human resources to maintain it over time. So the old infrastructure as a service, you know, whether it was on-prem or in the cloud, and you had so many, you'd have one administrator managing, you know, a hundred machines, maybe. Uh, well, now you, you, know, you now you're now you're running services that can that can span, you know, almost infinitely across many machines, and you're configuring it all in one place. Any ideal picture of mix and match of hybrid cloud versus regular cloud for you? Or obviously, it, um, my answer would always be every organization is different. Every organization right. has a very specific individual group of end users. But uh, curious how you feel about where should you put? Um, I don't know, desktop as a service. And should we have, should we have, um, you know, virtual desktops or should we still have physical desktops? Are we there yet? Are we there with the virtual desktops yet? Because when I speak with my Microsoft guy, he's going to say, you know, Microsoft is making leaps and bounds when it comes to security and various different issues. So, sure. And when I say Microsoft guy, I mean internal Microsoft engineer. I don't mean um, the guy that came off of Gartner Magic Quadrant and is calling me from Microsoft. (laughs) Right. There's plenty of them. But it's a good question because, a lot of people, a lot of companies, uh, either say we're 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 going everything to the cloud. They honestly don't understand the because the, the cloud is not the end all be all. It's not the answer to everything, nor will it ever be. Uh, if you're a large company with a very diverse set of applications, including some older applications and older technologies that are still part, and, and where I see this a lot is in. Uh, defense industry or aerospace. Uh, I've worked for uh, some companies that build rockets, and uh, you might have something still running on Windows ninety five that's mm-hmm. part of a launch. And so, stuff well, I've like- run into people that have you know all of their servers and stuff floating in a container ship offshore, completely off the grid, that has to be right. um, you know so highly secure that I had to sign an NDA just to talk on the phone with them or something. You know, uh, you know, yeah. various different things like that. Well, and before it became legal to do gambling as much as we do here in the U.S., that's where many of the gambling apps, apps were. We're right offshore where it was in international waters. 
how, how how far offshore do we have to go? Now let's go to this section of the show called um, uh, conspiracy theories. How many miles do we have to go Yeah, how many miles do we have to go offshore to be out of internet? Isn't it like six miles or seven miles? It's not far. It's do you not, know what it is? It's less. It, it, I, I was thinking ten or twelve, but it's not far. It's it's less than twenty. Let's just put it that way, which is not very far to be in international waters. So, if anyone has any ideas of, you know, I'm, what's Microsoft doing down there, sinking those underwater data centers? You know, um, <laughs> what, what's going on there? You mentioned rockets. Uh, where, <laughs> um, no, but in all seriousness, this is the section of the show called conspiracy theories or anything. You said you were an old school when we were talking earlier. You're an old school X Files, you know, fan or anything. Is there is there any oh, yeah. wild stuff that you know? Any wild stuff? Can we talk Russia? Are we allowed to do that? Is is the, sure. is this a CIA op? Is this a, is this like a psyop? You know this this whole uh, you know uh, 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 you know Russian coup attempt, or is this you know is this Putin's like you know genius genius military plan? I, I happen to think it might be that. I I think it's so. Yeah, you know it's kind of a. Yeah, interesting. I'm just watching. I'm just sitting back, you know, you know, popping popcorn. But you know, so I I think I think Putin, in many regards, has failed miserably. Now, remember, he (laughs) did this. He did this years ago with Afghanistan as well. Uh And the I, it just does not work to go if you go into a country that has a strong national bond and they're not going to leave. You know, and then now they they've even tried shipping people out. From uh, you know, you know, into Russia, from you know, um, hmm. because uh, yeah, migrating, like, yeah, as they they have forced migration, they've actually done that in some of the towns that they've they've overtaken in Ukraine. Huh. And uh, now I don't know how that long that's going to last. People will maybe find ways to get back. Nah, there. it won't but, work. Uh, I that's think, crazy. But you can't you, you can't occupy a country. This is one of those things that as humans evolve a little further. They'll stop trying to take over land, you know, because with today's uh, has a visibility into everything you're doing. You can't just take a land and execute everyone. And now we have the land. It's, you know, that's not that's never going to happen again. Uh, Well, let's hope not. But uh, the Mm -hmm. mass the mass extinction or genocides that we've seen in past, hopefully we are past that. And because Mm -hmm. of that. Yes. Um, what Putin is trying to do is is not sustainable, and he's eventually going to lose this. Now everyone's going to lose. You know, Ukraine is are already losing life, and they're and they're losing you know everything they've built up because they were they were a, a fledgling democracy on the rise, and now they've got a tremendous amount of rebuilding they have to do because of the war. So that's the only thing that Putin's achieved. Um, mm. So I think he is going to lose this, and I think he is starting to lose. Uh, the how to say the support of at least parts of the Russian people, despite the fact that he owns the media there. It is quite, um, I, I think, from a general general layman's point of view. And you see people in the street with cell phones nowadays. And when you think of it from a technology standpoint, because again, this is a technology show, and you, you see people filming things with their cell phones and stuff, you get a real clear picture of the majority of the people are just walking around wanting to go get their burrito at Chipotle and, you know, whatever it is on a daily basis. Meanwhile, there's tanks going through the street and, and wildness like that. I don't, I don't think the, the majority of people really are just trying to live their life. They are. They are. You know, whether they're Russians or Ukrainians, they're, mm-hmm. they, they, I don't think either side, the, the regular people want what's going on there. 
And uh, I think it sucks that there's a megalomaniac like Putin that uh, thinks he can, you know, he wants he wants the old USSR. He's not going to get I it. can't speak to any of this because I'm completely ignorant to politics and all of this stuff. I mean, I'm a guy with eight kids. I'm the guy that just, you know, that, again, wants to go to Chipotle and get his burrito. I'm completely clueless <laughs> of all of this. I'm just being honest with you. I don't. Um, I think the, most Americans are like that, too. I mean, most Americans just want to live their lives and uh, and actually don't like the polarization of politics that we have. I wouldn't know. I to me, I I wouldn't really know what's true. That that's my general thought on all this. Is I don't really know what is real anymore and what's not real. It's hard to tell. Yeah. Um, however, I do know that people can overspend on Amazon Web Services. That I do know is a truth. That I do know. Whether yeah. uh, all the stuff that I read in the in the marketing, you know, uh, noise, whether all the marketing noise is real or not, and who really is in the upper right hand quadrant and all that type of stuff that I am a little bit skeptical of. So of the companies that you see on a, I don't know, daily basis that are in Azure or some form of the cloud, how many of them are, would you say, are not fully optimized and have a lot of work to do that's good work? Oh, it's probably 80%. It's a high percentage. It's an 80-20 rule. So 80% of everyone out there right now listening to this show that has something up in Azure of some point or or something in the cloud, there's a good chance that you're overpaying and not optimizing and have some good work to do. So your job security is is there. Yeah. And, and if you want to get help, it'll more than pay for itself. Which is which we will help you do. We, If anyone would like to get that help, you can reach out to both me and Keith, and we will work together to make sure you get that help and that it pays for itself. There Guaranteed. You <laughs> you know, something like that. What mentors, uh, just general leadership in general, your your career in general. Have you had any great mentors? What what has been some of your biggest learning experiences and where can people go? Uh, what would your philosophy be on that? Yeah, and I, I would say, you know, particularly to any uh, young folks out there kind of earlier in their career, you know, in, in really almost any in any area, but especially IT, is uh, find someone uh, that you really respect, that you like, that you can talk to, uh, to get some guidance. Because, you know, IT, like any, any, really like anything else, does have a little bit of politics to it. It's just, it's, it's a little unavoidable. But... Uh, you want to make sure you're getting on the right projects that builds the career for the skills you want to build. The great thing about IT is it's, it's broad. There's so much there. And the bad thing about it is if you're really good at one thing, I actually had this earlier in my career where I was a, a super good developer and I was never mm. going to get out of that role until mm. I until I became bold about it. Right. Mm. I, I, got, I got my MBA at Duke. I kind of worked my way into more leadership roles. And then later on, I did some consulting where I lived and worked overseas for a number of years, which helped me grow as a person uh, as well as an IT specialist. And but you have to you have to actually do those things. If you're very good at one particular area of IT, uh, your boss doesn't really have a whole lot of incentive to move you around. <laughs> mm. It's interesting because most people say don't spread yourself thin, but in this particular field of work, it it is kind of good to be a jack of all trades and 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 spread yourself uh, thin, which is which is odd. It's just it's just not that you know. Uh, it's just an interesting thing. The and so did you 
I mean, I guess, did you have any mentors there? I mean, what, at what point, you know, were you like, did someone just tell you, Hey, um, stop developing software and act dumb or make some bad code? I mean, what, you know, at what point, at what point did you realize, you know, you said you traveled and you got some different experience. Was there any, mm-hmm. mm, yeah. So my, my, my first really good mentor, and I wish I could remember his last name right now is Mike. Uh, he was uh, a manager of mine at IBM in North Carolina. And he was the guy that was my champion at, that said uh, he talked to the people upstairs and said, if you if you get accepted to Duke's MBA program, we'll pay for it. So what a great guy. He really helped boost my career and my uh and my self-confidence at the time. And he and I could also, you know, hang out with him. He was a he was a very easygoing, down-to-earth guy. So I could, I just learned a lot about how things work amongst people. I'd have to say I came, and I think this is true for a lot of IT people, particularly in the development space, is I was somewhat of an introvert uh earlier in my career. And I had to learn to to socialize and get really comfortable with people because that's how you get things done you influence how did you do that because i was the guy in the high in high school that walked with my head down didn't talk to anybody <laughs> i was i mean if people are like what are you talking about when i tell people I'm like, honestly i was the guy i was like i've scared of my own shadow i didn't talk to people i was absolutely an introvert people don't believe me i'm like now you have this i'm just do, i do this podcast as therapy for that <laughs> Well, and you almost have to, you know, you put yourself in situations where you have to grow in that area. And mm. that might be a reason why you do these podcasts because you it keeps you going in that direction. Uh, one of my outlets that got me, I say, more socialized was sports. I, uh, yes. Over the years, I, I play a lot. I even still play a lot of ice hockey. And, mm. uh, you know, nothing's better than doing something as a team. You know, it, it, even in a sports context, uh, I told you I went cycling this weekend for the MS-150. Mm-hmm. That was with my team. And uh, and that kind of gets you out there. It, Nothing it, like contact sports, too, where there's fighting involved and blood. <laughs> Well, it becomes quite a bonding moment because it does. I tell people I like, uh, bye, I'm going off to roll around with a bunch of sweaty men right now because I go do, you know, jujitsu or whatever, you know, you know, and like you can, (laughs) you come back sometimes with like, you know, blood on your gi and stuff like that. But there's just, I don't know. You're right. Sports is, um, uh, getting out there, getting yourself involved in a sport or something like that definitely, definitely would help, especially from the stereotypical, you know, software development guys that are sitting in a closet with all the lights off in front of a screen, you know, for hours on end. They're, they're just shoving pizza under the door to keep you going. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yes, absolutely. The MBA, was that um, necessary or just a nice bullet point? It it became more necessary over time. I tell you, because that too was a transition for me from being a pure technologist to now, you know, doing these classes about business. Uh, working a number of the people in the MBA school weren't technologists, right? It's probably maybe maybe 10 to 15 percent of us that came from an IT background. The rest were in business and sales. So there I was getting exposed to people who knew business a lot better than I did and working on projects with them. Uh, tremendously enlightening and it helped me the rest of my career because right after that, after I left IBM is when I started uh, my consulting career and did some international consulting for about five years. Uh, and uh, that has a the socialization for the MBA, the learning about business. Mm-hmm. It really helped that further transition to now 
going abroad. And uh, I tell all my young friends, if you ever have the chance to really go somewhere, not just for a two-week vacation, but yep. go li live and work somewhere, learn a language, learn a culture. Do you know any other languages? I used to. I Yagtalalitisvenska. Uh, I, I speak a little Swedish, but I'm really rusty. Uh, but if you there, went there, it would come back real quick. It, it would come back yeah. quick. It would, and Swedish is not a hard language compared to some of the others. It's mostly, uh, it's Germanic-based, and it has yep. roughly the same uh, sentence structure as English. I'm really trying really hard to learn Arabic. I have been doing it for years, for years. And uh, I'm going to Morocco next month for at least a month to take a couple of my daughters and also go surfing at the same time, because wow. they're some of the best surfing in the world. But um, yes, traveling. You surf here in the U.S.? Yeah, I surf in Maine, of all places, in the wintertime. Uh, the water temperature is about 35 degrees. Right. Definitely um, wetsuit time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Six mil webs, wetsuits, fine. People think you're wild and crazy, but you're warmer than the people walking on the beach in a winter jacket. So, yeah. Well, there's Canadian surfers, too. So I, Yeah, I, Iceland. People surf. There's ice. There's surfing in Iceland. <laughs> Look, Google sure. it, people. Google surfing right now. There's some good breaks. In Iceland. So for what it's, what it's worth, I love surfing too. I, I generally go to California. I would love to. Um, have I, The only time I've ever been to California was to San Francisco for some work trip a while ago, and that was it. Uh, I would love to just go on a surfing trip. My uh, nephew lived in Bali for a long time, was wow. jealous of his waves every day um because we get you know maybe a dozen really good just really good days you know i would prefer to have it like every day but sure uh, i did live on the beach for a while it does get it can get old doing that every single day for a while um which i never thought it would get old but it's it, um it was kind of like oh you gotta do something with your life now <laughs> and all the servers out there were like what what do you mean? Like, what do you mean, dude? What are you talking about? Are you stupid? Like, this yeah. is life. <laughs> yeah. This is a way of life. <laughs> what do you mean? And it's there really is like a surfer like stereotype. It's hilarious. I went we I went out surfing right after a big great white sighting. A, a great white had killed this uh, a minky whale. Or it was eating off a dead no a minky whale had died and these in this you know there hasn't been great whites in maine in a long time they're usually down in cape cod but, but with like i don't know global warming or something there's all of a sudden there's great whites in maine now and we've never had a shark attack death ever in a hundred years and then we had our first one like it was a year or two ago yeah, and there was a huge warmer. great white and they had pictures of it biting into this whale it was just you know wow 15 i mean the whale washed up on shore like i could see the whale and where the and then you know there was good waves that day so in the all the flags were up from the lifeguards and i'm sitting there waiting it's almost five o'clock the lifeguard's gonna go away i jumped in the water right as the <laughs> lifeguard you know with the surfer and i went out and there's the, the one guy out there kind of stares and goes hey man uh his kid was on the front of the board. I was like, did you see that? I was like, did you see about that shark? He's like, hey, man, come on. My kids are on the front of the board. I was like, oh, yeah, sorry, sorry. I was like, you know, <laughs> he's like, besides, he's like, the sharks have always been here. He said, just like, the sharks have always been here, man, always will be. They've been here a thousand years before yeah, we were not, here. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's good for the surfers. They get the tourists out of the water. <laughs> that was great. That was great. Um, yeah. So I guess final thing. So I had... 
in we'll end on Amazon or or some sort of cloud piece because I had a, a close friend to me. You know, I get these questions every now and the people that aren't in technology, but they're young and you know they're looking for some sort of mentorship or they're getting out of you know college or they're getting ready to graduate. So, what do you think about Amazon? I'm thinking about doing that. You know, and you're like, I don't even know what I don't know where to tell. I'm thinking about taking this course on Amazon. I'm like, I don't know where to tell you. I don't, I don't even know where to tell you where to begin. I was like, but that, I was like, you do realize it's a very broad field. And, you know, yes, you could go get certifications and, and you could learn this and you could learn that. What would you tell someone that's trying to find a job in life? Like most of the, I don't know. I just, I can remember being at CSU and I was a creative writing major. So I didn't know what I was doing when I was getting out of college. I, had, any advice for someone that might actually, if you were to get involved in cloud and technology, where would you start? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a number of ways to do it. And and uh, over the years, because I've, I've worked as a, a CTO in a number of places and the people that work for me as developers, architects, or data uh, data architects, I've often helped them make the transition into cloud and and tried to mentor them. I tried to give them the mentoring I didn't always have when I was younger because I I think that's just the right thing to do. And long story short, if if you're not, if you if you have a particular area to go like like data, there's some very has a very easy path to take. The, uh, but it usually starts with some certifications. So if you cho- choose your platform of choice, but know that. Whatever you learn in Amazon or whatever you learn in Azure is likely transferable to the other platform, even GCP for the most part, though it's a it's a little bit of it's almost like a different language there. Mm-hmm. But um, but the idea is like between Azure and AWS, everything you can do in one, you can do in the other. It's just got a different name. And so there's, <laughs> this, there's this basic certification called uh what's it called? Certified Cloud Practitioner. They both have it and um, I, you know, th- there was an irony that I got certified in AWS, but actually knew more about Azure yeah, hey. for that, uh, for that cloud practitioner one. But certified point, cloud practitioner. Okay. And that, that gives you a broad spectrum of all, like pretty much everything to do in a broad way, you know, and you, and you, and you get tested on it. You get the certification. It's a good thing to add to your resume. And then you can kind of decide you know what, I like data or I like solution architecture and so on and so on and kind of, and then and then go deeper in those areas that you get excited for. And if you're a business person, maybe a little less technical, but you really like cloud, things like cloud optimization and FinOps uh, is all about your operating model to make it, uh, to make it better for the organization going on. That's great. Cause I'm going to now send him this podcast and be like, Hey, I, I got an answer to your question. You got to listen to this whole podcast and it's right at the end of it. You can't fast forward. It's somewhere in there. No, it's somewhere in the podcast. So I answered <laughs> I answered your question. So uh, thank you very much for being on the show. This was uh, this was a pleasure and uh, I think very eye-opening as well. So uh, a lot of great advice. Appreciate it. Uh, you're welcome, Phil. I enjoyed the conversation. Uh, good stuff. And uh, we'll do it again sometime. Awesome. <laughs>